is it you haven't seen the god song, Psycho? Bro, you have seen Taxi Driver? Hello, and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. As always, I am Bubba Wheat, and today I will be... Uh, discussing two films as usual, a, a film that I had never seen and a f- superhero or comic book movie that my guest had never seen. And today my guest is Max Coville from Impassioned Cinema. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's good to have you on. Um, and for our guests, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself and where they can find you online. All right. I've been an online journalist for the past three years. My work can be found at my website, Impassion Cinema, as well as the movie websites Filmoria, Movie Mezzanine, and Sound On Site. Um, normally, I cover anything from film to TV to video games. Nice. Um, and as always, I have a handful of questions for you to get to know your movie taste just a little bit more. So what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? This was really like a, a difficult question for me because why there was like two that I knew that I'd seen a lot. There was one that I saw chickened out with. <laughs> um, the first one that I picked was the one like my favorite movie ever, which is Lost in Translation, the Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I really love that film. The second one I picked was a Christmas film. Uh, obviously, it's a lot easier to watch a, a Christmas film every year. In, in this case, it's The Muppets Christmas Carol, which I have yet to watch this year, but am looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I think I watched the, the Muppet Christmas Carol for the first time in a long time, like uh, just last year. Yeah, it's it's a seminal favorite for me. Mm-hmm. And then another favorite film of mine growing up uh, was The Matrix, and I can recite the last 45 minutes of that movie line for line. I've seen it so many times. Yeah, it's it's still such a great film, even though it's a little bit tarnished by the reputation of the, the two sequels. What sequels? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and although I I do love the the Animatrix too. Right, I do too. And and that kind of gets ignored in the the grand scheme of things. Um, all right. So, what is your favorite movie that you've only seen once? Uh, this is kind of embarrassing to admit. Um, I've only seen There Will Be Blood once, and yet it's one of my favorites, right down from acting and story and everything. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that, um, but I that's one of those that I haven't seen yet. I, I i can't remember if I've put it on my watch list, but if I haven't, it's one that that could easily go on, on my watch list for, um, for guests of this show to choose, because I have heard a ton of great things about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan, and uh, he is just overpowering in his lead performance. And uh, I think what's taken me away from the movie, from rewatching it, is maybe the length. It, it's a pretty long movie, mm-hmm. uh, as well as it's not exactly uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know that there's, I had, there's a lot of movies out there where um, it just the the tone of it is a film that you are perfectly fine with just watching once. Yeah, I know. There, there's other films that I know of that would certainly be able to fit into this category, but uh, this is one that I thought would be good. Mm-hmm. And of course, I asked everyone, what is your favorite superhero movie? Uh, this is almost a cop-out. I chose the Christopher Reeve Superman film. Um, I, I have a soft spot for that film and why maybe I like other superhero movies more or, so, or something. I just, uh, I just keep on going back to the original Superman film. No, I, I completely understand that. And that, I mean, for a lot of people, especially people of that age that saw that for the first time in theaters whenever they were a kid, it's one that just sticks with you, and um, and I I know a lot of people, uh, even if they claim the original Superman is their favorite, they will still admit that maybe the Dark Knight is the better film. 
but the, it's hard to top Christopher Reeve's performance and just the tone of that movie is so uplifting compared to like the the dark reality of the dark knight yeah certainly i mean uh it could i could pick up her films as well in this category too but um superman does have a special place it it felt magical at the time right yeah and and it definitely does that very well um and then if you were to pick like just a narrow niche of films uh, something to maybe write about exclusively, such as like super superhero films or films set at Christmas or or films about film. Uh, what would that be? Well, for this for this question, I had to break it down a little bit because I I would have been like just let's do science fiction, but I thought to even go smaller and just do a covering dystopian worlds on in film um in college i one of my final classes was about utopian societies and i don't know i've been fascinated by different rules and living conditions yeah and especially lately it seems like the uh the uh teen the, the young adult dystopian sci-fi has become fashionable again right uh, that's everywhere now <laughs> yeah and and I would uh, get on your case a little bit if you would have just picked sci-fi because I, I don't – that's a, a pretty wide-encompassing genre rather than just a narrow niche. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the, the dystopian futures like uh, like you mentioned earlier. The Matrix is, is a great example of that too. Right, and like films like Gattaca, I really like that, that shows that kind of future. Mm-hmm. Um. Blade Runner, so uh, sci-fi, science fiction generally does utopian societies, but you have to. There are some that definitely go outside that realm, right? And then finally, what is your current biggest film-wise at the moment? The the film that you haven't seen yet, but you feel like you really ha- should have gotten around to by now. I actually listed quite like I listed four, but the, the only reason why I listed four was because. I own all these films, but um, I'll just—I guess I'll just put the, the top one that I own that I haven't watched yet, which is *Full Metal Jacket* by Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. I've seen every one of his other films, maybe besides for *Spartacus*, which some people consider not really his film. Um, and I don't know—I just think that it's something that I have to fix. I, 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 everybody talks about *Full Metal Jacket* still, and it seems like it'd be right up my alley. Yeah, I, I know I've. I also haven't seen that that film yet, and although I've seen like several clips of it, especially because the um, the scenes with Arlie Ermy are just so synonymous with that film, and that's really what got him into the film career to begin with. Yeah, and I mean, I'm a big fan of all of Kubrick's other films. I mean, 2001: Space Odyssey could be among some of my one of my favorite films, and uh, I just don't see a reason why I haven't sat down yet to watch Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that was uh, good to hear a little bit more about your film tastes. And uh, But now we are going to talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time, All About Eve. Something made of music and fire. The time has come! Here we are. You're quite a girl. You think? <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs> you missed. Alright, um, yeah, I chose All About Eve. I believe that it has some incredible performances um, and tells a really interesting story of uh, how a young woman wants to just get into the acting industry and she sort of manipulates her way into a circle and uh, basically assumes the character of her mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and before I had seen this movie... I had heard a lot about it. Like there, there's a ton of films that are heavily inspired by 
the film. It's like it's almost even a term like that you hear about. Like she all of she all about eved her. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could totally see that. What 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 was your uh, feelings on the film? Um, well, it, I will say that it, it took a little bit to get going, but I I think especially in and the moment that really um, I think where the film turned, that's really where my interest like was completely focused on the movie. Like I was just kind of. Uh, half paying attention um, through like the first half, but the, that moment whenever Eve uh, shows her true face uh, to Karen in the ladies' room, right? <laughs> like when when she makes that turn, that's really where where like my ears perked up, and it's like, yeah, this is where it it starts to get interesting. Like this this is where stuff goes down. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because um, you don't really. I mean, now, since the movie's been around forever, you might expect that turn to come. But um, it's interesting in the fact that uh, this year's Gone Girl uses similar turns and stuff like that. And um, it's just always you don't expect women to basically... Well, not women in general, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, you don't expect that turn to really happen where the good character is all of a sudden a little strange. Yeah, and I mean, throughout there, there's there's like hints of it, I guess. But for the most part, she's like Eve is this very demure, very humble character, and like so much so that nobody expects that she's doing anything wrong. Right, she's like a perfect friend and perfect housemate, and it's so lovely that she looks up to the. The, the character Betty Davis plays. Mm-hmm. She's like the super fan right. of of Margot, and just and every everything that she does, she's like extremely humble about it. And it's interesting because the I mean that there is the hint that she is manipulating the situation through her humbleness. But at the same time, she doesn't, uh, like, everyone just is super nice to her. Right. She's she's really getting as far as she's getting through everyone else's actions. And I guess while we're here, um, usually it's pretty, I guess, interesting when you all of a sudden see Marilyn Monroe show up in a film. Um, Did you you have any... uh, I don't know any expectation <laughs> that she'd be there, or how, I know it's a small role, but um. yeah, and 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 in fact, because I, I haven't watched, like I haven't seen a ton of classic films. I, I've only seen like I think one other film with Marilyn Monroe, and it was uh, Some Like It Hot. So she looked a little bit different than she does in this. So I completely overlooked her whenever. She was uh, whenever she popped up, I, I didn't catch that it was her. And then I I read, I was reading the trivia about it a little bit later, and I saw that it was her, and I had to rewind it and and check out the scene again. It's like, oh wow, that that really is Marilyn Monroe. How did I, <laughs> how did I miss that? Yeah, uh, you mentioned some like a hot that that's one of the all time great comedies. Um, I think uh, Monroe in here is yeah just a supporting character, but um. It's interesting to see her in another maybe um, loved film because a lot of her work, I, I think, is hit or miss. Um, there's certainly some classics among them, but um, it she'll, she'll live on forever in All About Eve for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the, I I think like the the thing that this film does do really well is just the way that it sets up her plan in motion especially like like i was saying i think the latter half is stronger than the first half because she during the first half she is like just playing this completely innocent character and you see hints of things here and there and and there's even like just bits of suspicion like like betty davis's character she uh gets jealous of her at, at one point um, but then everybody thinks that she's just overreacting. 
Yeah, I, I can tur- I can totally see where that happens. I was just uh, looking up. Um, this All About Eve did win the Best Picture in 1950. Um, to on a whole, I use I think you said you enjoy it, but um, how much do you think you enjoyed? It, I guess. Um. Well, I I wouldn't say that it would be one of my all time favorites. Um, it, it is a little bit on the long side. It's just over two hours. And, and like I said, it, it's a little bit slow to start. Um, I, I might enjoy it a bit more on the second watch because I would know where things would, were going and I might look into it a little bit deeper. Uh, cause I, I do like the, and, and the other character that we haven't talked about yet is, uh, Addison, the, the theater critic. Right. And, he is just this really great character, and um, he's one of those people where, like, halfway through the movie, it, it's like his voice is so striking, and it's like, I, I know, I know that voice from somewhere, and he just has this great, like, smooth, silky voice that has something sinister underneath it. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you keep on mentioning it's a little slow at the beginning. I think that it's important to mention that, like, at the beginning, it is more about maybe bringing in uh, Anne Baxter's character Eve into the circle and they're, in, they're backstage at, at the uh, opera house or the at, at the end of a play. Mm-hmm. So it does, it does pl- take its time to really just introduce the characters and some of these you don't really have any idea who they are and they're just going about their lives like you've already been there. Right, and, and looking back on it, she does have this... Uh, basically this great performance that that she where she introduces herself and, and tells the story about her husband who went away to war and and died and so she was left alone and she had all this free time and she found Margot at, at the play in San Francisco I believe it was and then she and then the they moved east and she followed the the play east and and then it's not till later that uh that addison uh kind of exposes her that that was all fabricated because he had been to san francisco and he knew that there was no such theater <laughs> and like he did all the this detective work and and found out what her true name was and how she's this basically this runaway that she left home and her parents are looking for her like they still they don't know where she is and it it's just like this casual mention but it's it really says a lot about her character right and how much she's willing to lie and manipulate to get to where she wants to be mhm and and it really is just interesting that about how much Eve manip- manipulates everything around her. Like the whenever we first, like right before the the big turn, where she gets her, where she becomes the the understudy, and she then sabotages the car. Uh, but she does it. From what I understand, she does it through other people because I guess she. Um, um, if, it wasn't entirely clear to me, but I, I think what happened was that she convinced Karen to run an errand in the car. And I guess it was farther away than Karen thought, and she didn't pay attention to the gas cage because she's a woman. <laughs> um, and then whenever they were driving um, Betty Davis to the, or Margot to the train to catch her performance on time, they ran out of gas. Right. And there, she just happens to have invited all these theater critics. Right, for her big performance as the understudy. Right, it's a, it's her big debut that that nobody knew about, except for her. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, you, um, I think that the film is is really interesting again because um, I hate to use, I'm, I'm banning myself from using the word interesting. Um, oh, let's see here because. It really focuses on the two women leads. There's still films today that there's not very many films for strong female leads and a real female-centric uh, film. 
but All About Eve from 1950, and you have two fantastic female performances, and when we're still clamoring for uh, good scripts to come out to showcase women, um, here was a script done 64 years ago that did it very well. Right, and and one of the things that I did read that um, that I liked was the fact that both Ann Baxter and Betty Davis were nominated for um, Best Leading Actress. And uh, there's some speculation that because Ann Baxter um, pushed for the leading actress instead of the supporting actress was one reason why neither one of them got it. Yeah, I could could totally see that. (laughs) Sometimes, like, canceling each other out. Mm -hmm. And and this... um, I'm not sure if it's uh, out of date anymore because I don't follow the Oscars too much. But this is um, this is the film with the most nominations. It got 14 nominations. Oh yeah, I mean, other than Return of the King or Titanic, I'm sure this this is really up there. 14 nominations. Yeah, I, I think um, at at the time of the trivia, which. I don't know how long ago that that was written, but that uh, Titanic was just below it. I, I think it it got twelve or thirteen, maybe. And I'm I don't I think Return of the King only got like nine, or maybe more than that. But um, anyway, but yeah, I do think it's I I do like the fact that this does have this is a, a female centric film. Um, because we do get the basically the the husbands are are the side characters, even though they're the ones that are more or less in charge. Because the uh, Margot's husband, well, eventual husband, is the the director. Um, I guess he was the theater director, and the, but then he also goes off to direct a Hollywood film. And then Karen's husband is the the screenplay, right? Uh, the author, the writer of the play, right? But at the same time, we we don't really see them as being. Um, they don't really further the story themselves. They're they're more reactionary to the the female characters. Yeah, I think it does a great job with using those characters, and um, although um, the women performances are mostly because they're actresses um they still um move the film forward themselves and are uh well equipped to handle the film Mm -hmm. and i I did notice that that there is a lot of um uh, like sexual innuendo but at the same time it's never fully clear if uh eve is actually um sexually seducing any of the men because there's the um like she she has this whole story that she uh, that karen suspects and uh but then addison more or less uh debunks about how she has been seducing um lloyd the the screenwriter uh, karen's husband uh, this whole time, and and he's about ready to leave her and and marry Eve, but then Addison reveals that that was all just a, a big lie, and and that wasn't true, and and that's and that's a, a really great scene, and like a, almost a bit of a twist ending because I wasn't fully expecting that much uh, all all of her past to come out. Like I knew that Addison suspected something because early on in the scene he's. Uh, questioning her, like after her under her first understudy performance, he comes backstage and he hears her trying to seduce um, Margot's husband, and then, or I I think I might be mixing this up, and, and it's and he comes back later, but he's questioning her about the about her time in San Francisco, and you can tell that he's like prodding her for information, and <laughs> that he suspects that that she's not telling the full truth. Yeah, it's it's great because it also, like you say, it works almost like a mystery film as well in that case where he's trying to find out who exactly this young woman is and how she got to where she is so quickly. 
Right. And, and she has this great, and I hadn't thought about it before, but she plays it. She really plays it perfectly because she's like, she's answering the questions. Um, but then if you look back on it, you realize that she is getting suspicious. So she takes that moment to say that she's going to go into the shower where she can't hear him anymore. (laughs) How convenient. (laughs) But the way she plays it, like, if you're just watching it, like you're watching it for the first time and, and you don't see, you don't catch exactly how it's going, she plays it completely innocent. Like you, you wouldn't expect that that she knows more than she's letting, letting on. Yeah, and and that really sums up her character to a T for most of this film. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you did enjoy the film. It's I I really uh, enjoy it myself. I think that the writing is really sharp in the film. Um, they do a, a really good job of all their lines and just like you can tell when a film is well written. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I, I definitely noticed that the, the the dialogue is really great. It's really sharp for the time. There's definitely uh, a few moments here and there where it it does, like you can tell just that it's a fifth, that you're watching a fifties movie, but it's still like really sharp and and it really, the, the back and forth just is, uh, is great. Did you did you uh, particularly notice the iconic line in the film? Oh yes, I. Um, oh, the um, uh, fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Betty Davis just delivers that line with such a blum, and uh, it's like it's like up oh, there it is. It's it's one of those movies where um, you can pick out the classic line. Yeah, and then there there were a couple other things that, that I do want to talk about about this film because it it is a great commentary just on um, I know it's set in the theater world but it, the Hollywood world in general too just the the fact that it's Hollywood is such it, it recycles their women so quickly like uh, Betty Davis in, in here is forty years old. Um, and she is, feels like she's more or less on her way out. Right. And that more or less true for, for most women that, that they get replaced by the, like the Jennifer Lawrence, um, of the world. And there's always the next young actress that starts taking all the roles and it becomes like, it's always, um, there's there's always the next um, face that's that's the new. It's like uh, she's the new Meryl Streep or or whoever it is. And even though like Meryl Meryl Streep is one of the few exceptions to to the actresses that that keeps going on and getting these great roles, but for the most part, uh, but she's also not getting any lead roles. Like, uh, she's kind of transitioned into more of the supporting roles for the most part. Right. The last one was, I think, the Iron Lady that she was given, like, a big uh, uh, leading actress role. Um, but, yeah, I can certainly see where you're, where you're coming from. Even if we will use more dystopian actresses and say Shailene Woodley is coming up and uh, going to be taking a lot of roles soon. And, mm-hmm. um in another sense, Jessica Chastain is another young actress that is getting a lot of attention and going up the ranks. But yeah, certainly I can see where it's unfair for law actresses where they reach even the, <laughs> the young age of 40 and it's already nearing the end of their career unless they can um, sort of reinvent themselves. Right. And um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was the ending of this film which is really great how it, it shows the the cyclical nature uh, especially because uh, eve uh, like when has won her award she's like the the youngest woman to have ever won this award and uh, she's been presented uh, presented by one of the oldest actors at the time um 
which gets commented on at, at the very beginning. Uh, and then she goes back to her hotel room and there's this young, even younger woman who is, um, who had fallen asleep and we see her in, in this great shot in, in the mirror whenever she's, whenever Eve's pouring herself a drink. And even just in this short of time, you can tell that Eve has already transitioned and she's already acting the way that Margot acted in the beginning of the film. Right, and that the woman there is going to become the new Eve. Right. <laughs> to, and, and you even see the, this, this young woman, Phoebe, uh, she already starts lying and manipulating the, what's going on around her because Addison comes up and um, brings Eve's award that she had left in the taxi. And Phoebe recognizes Addison, even though he's just a theater critic. Uh, she recognize him, recognizes him by his face. And she, whenever she returns it to Eve, she doesn't say who it is, who it was. She lies and says that it was the, the taxi driver that had brought it up. And that just really brings things around and... And really helps to show the the tenuous nature of of acting. Right. You're, you're here today, gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that was just a brilliant way to 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 wrap this movie up. And and one of the reasons, like I said, why I enjoy the the last half more than more than the first half. Even though I understand that the first half is really necessary to help establish these characters. Uh, but it's still a little bit of a, a chore to, to get through to to get to the interesting part at the the end. Right. It's like uh, you need the build up before the turn happens. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to mention about all about Eve? No, I think I think we covered a lot. And uh, again, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I I, I really enjoyed this film. I, I was uh, I know I was excited for talking about it today and i always find something new whenever i watch it Mm. all right well we are going to take a quick break and then whenever we come back we're going to talk about the film that i had you watch for the first time batman returns this podcast is a proud member of the lamb podcasting network find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com listen to the lair of the unwanted on itunes and you can hear me jason soto use the f word French? No. Fudge? Eh, sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? What? what? No. Farfid Nugent? Jeez, no. Alright, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about f- in the layer of the unwanted. Covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. After the success of Batman, it's no surprise that Tim Burton returned to do the sequel, even though it's still currently the only sequel that he has directed to date. Instead, he's done several reboots and re-adaptations. Uh, Michael Keaton returned as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, and it, it felt like Burton was allowed a little bit more free reign on this project because it has even more of a Tim Burton feel to it than the first 89 Batman did uh, with all the falling snow, all the the big gothic bath- backdrops and the, the misunderstood villains, which really takes center stage with uh, Catwoman and the Penguin and even to a lesser extent, Max Shrek. Um, this is... Uh, one of my all-time favorite superhero movies. I, I enjoy Batman Returns better than the first Batman. And one of the reasons why I asked you to come on as a guest was because I I believe I saw you mention on Twitter that, that you had never seen Tim Burton's Batman. Um, and, and then you went and you went ahead and watched that one uh, on your own. Um, but then I got you to uh, to watch Batman Returns for this show, uh, and also um, because this this episode will be coming out like right around Christmas, I, I thought it was <laughs> great to. Uh, I just did a, a holiday episode last time uh, where I covered the the much more Christmassy uh, 
and and schlocky Elfman, uh, one of the only three Christmas themed superhero movies that I know about. Um, and we also covered the the much less Christmassy uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Right. Uh, but this is uh, another superhero film that's not written by Shane Black that takes place at Christmas. <laughs> uh, so I thought it was a great time to cover it. But um, So what did you think about Batman Returns? Uh, it's funny that you had me wait, too, because I, I had no idea it even took place during Christmas. And I was like, wow, this, this fits right perfect with the time. I'm watching a Christmas movie. <laughs> um I I'm kind of uh I don't know. I I <laughs> I, I don't say I love the film. Um I'm I'm sort of mixed on Tim Burton as a whole because of I'm I'm not into his uh directing style or his um the things that he generally likes with the fantasy elements. Um I felt that Batman Returns really has extreme fantasy elements with certain characters coming back to life to do animals and <laughs> um it while i don't i'm i'm a huge fan of batman and i know the mythos pretty well um it was interesting to see the penguin origin story done in this way i had always thought that penguin was just a normal gangster and he liked umbrellas and maybe his nose was a little weird but never did I um, really put together that maybe he could have been a just abnormal baby. And... Right, and and most of this version of his origin was originated in this movie. Um, and I believe that it, it was um, like retconned in some versions of the comics uh, to where he, he was more deformed, like... Uh, most of the time, I believe most versions of the penguin, he has normal hands and he, he does just have like the, uh, the elongated nose and the, the very round body and, and he prefers to wear, um, like a tuxedo, which is where his name comes from rather than, right. <laughs> rather than this slightly more deformed with like the flipper hands and, uh, and living in the sewers and, and all that stuff. But um, one thing that, that I know a lot of people have complaints about with this movie is that this movie feels more like uh, the, it feels more like Catwoman and Penguin featuring the Batman. Yeah, I could see that. But even uh, some of the Nolan movies, especially The Dark Knight, um, feels more like Joker than Batman. And, um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that I particularly mind as much as, say, that their characters were so unbelievable, stereotypical, like, uh, I don't know, out there because of coming back to life or that they had, I, I, I know that's how they're written, like animal mascots with the cats and the penguins. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't know. I, 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 I always had, like, a different, vision of Catwoman. Maybe maybe it was from the 66 Batman television show. Like, that's my vision of what Catwoman is. Yeah, with her, like, meowing every other sentence. Right. Or or purring. Or this one has a, a lot less of that. Uh, although, I did think it, it had one of the, the... There's a couple, like, really out there moments that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer has like whenever she's in uh, the penguins lair and oh yeah <laughs> and uh, she's like yeah I feel dirty I'm going to give myself a bath and then she starts licking her arm and and giving herself a cat bath right and and also like whenever she uh, more or less eats the bird um yeah certainly she's going for that more animalistic like she's been assimilated to being a cat. Uh, although it, it it also seems like that, that that's really about the only moment where she exhibits that. Like the most of the rest of the film, she more or less acts normal, except she uh, apparently uh, learned how to do gymnastics and, <laughs> uh, and whip skills after dying. Right. Yeah, that was kind of funny. It's like maybe they gave her special abilities where she could be 
Um, cause it seems like even before she, before Selena Kyle dies in the film, that she almost had like a bad back or she couldn't walk correctly or something like that. And maybe falling all those flights corrected her back and she could <laughs> all of a sudden do all these moves. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and like, uh, how, where was I going? Um, but the, yeah. I I also think that um that I did notice the the absence of Batman a little bit more this time around because I I didn't exactly time it but pretty much in the first hour of this film Batman only gets about 3 scenes and two of those are extremely short I would say he only gets maybe 10 minutes of screen time in the first hour of the film Instead, it's it's much more focused on the Penguin and Catwoman's origin story. Yeah, and Max Shrek, a character who seems like he was invented for this picture. Right, and and I that could be right. Um, I believe that he has made comics appearances, but I I'm not aware if they if he had any appearances before the film or if he was invented for the film and then he uh, made his way in afterwards. Uh, but, yeah, there's... Um, and the other thing that this that seems to get skipped over a little bit is that uh, the Batman mythos is that where he is pretty much against killing. But uh, did you notice the... Uh, the possible two deaths that uh, that he caused in this film. Um, let's see. <sighs> I mean, like it's obvious with the penguin at the end. Um, I don't, okay. I don't. He didn't do Max Shrek. I, I, who, who else would he have? Well, there, there's two henchmen. Like early on in in the clown fight, and and where Batman's in the Batmobile, he lights one of them on fire with the uh, with the Batmobile exhaust. All right, and uh, it's possible that that person survives because they're like a fire eater, so <laughs> <laughs> so he sets them on fire. Uh, oh, now I remember the ever one, and he puts like uh, dynamite on the yeah, he, guy. Yeah, he steals a, a uh, like a time bomb uh, from one of the clowns, and then he's carrying it around with him, and then he goes up against the strong man guy, and then. Uh, the strong man guy's like, go ahead, hit me, and he punches him, and then he looks down, and the strong man looks down, and then he's got the, the time bomb stuck in, stuck in his pants, and then Batman knocks him into the sewer, and then you see this explosion where uh, apparently the, the strong man blew up. Right. <laughs> Maybe it was more like a Looney Tunes version, and he only had his hair, like, singed. <laughs> yeah, which I, I did notice that... This does go to some pretty dark places and, and some pretty uh, risque places. Like uh, I think one of the the quotes from the Penguin, which is, I mean, it's I liked it, but whenever he comes in and sees Catwoman lying on the bed, he, he says, "Just the pussy I was looking for." Yeah, I was shocked when I heard that, <laughs> and also. Like even uh, during Selena Kyle's, whenever she gets pushed out the window, and she's lying on the ground, and we have this overhead shot with her bleeding from her head, apparently dead, and then all these cats come and and appear to to start eating her before she comes back to life, and and that's that's a pretty dark scene. Like you see the one cat nibbling on her fingers, which is all bloody, which is all bloody. Right, it's like maybe, that's why I'm like, I don't know, maybe they gave her some kind of serum or something that are like magical cats to bring her back to life. <laughs> um, she, When you bring up her falling, I just want to say that Michelle Pfeiffer falls an awful lot in this film. <laughs> yeah, she has, I think, three of her nine lives she loses to uh, to falling. And she has the the one scene... Or she falls through this like uh, greenhouse, and I thought it was kind of weird. And then she like screams, and all and the then, rest yeah, of the shatter. Breaks. 
And it's like as as the movie goes on and on, her mask begins to like rip more, and you like start seeing her hair come through the mask, and what was once fully covered is now um, you could just pretty much throw away the mask. Mm-hmm. And it, it's um, I always like the the romance between Batwoman, Bat, Bat, <laughs> Batman, and Catwoman, and Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne, and how they realize who each other is based on the the callback to their banter whenever they're fighting in costume with the uh, uh, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it, but it right. can be even deadlier if you mean it, which is probably one of the more famous lines from this film. Yeah, certainly that that was cool, and uh, I I I really I guess my wife mentioned it too, but I guess I would agree that um, big Batman and Catwoman shipper like they, I could see them being together um, like forever type deal, mm. and uh, whereas in the first Batman film, which again like you mentioned I just recently watched, uh, Batman's love interest was Kate uh, Basinger, I think. Yeah, Kim Kim Basinger, yeah, Vicky Kim Vale. Basinger. Yep, and um, which yeah, Vicky did, Vale. Did you catch the uh, Did you catch the callback to her? Yes, he says like, "Oh, they broke up, and he shouldn't have ever showed her." <laughs> well, it's like uh, after after the Penguins uh, clown posse um, hack the Batmobile, and then he finally gets it back to the Batcave, and Alfred's talking about, well, he can't exactly just take it to a repairman. We've got to think about security. And then uh, Batman goes off as, like, security? Who's the one who left who let Vicky Vale into the Batcave? Right. It's like, I turn around, it's like, oh, hello, Vicky. <laughs> well, like, I, I thought that was really interesting, just the character of Vicky Vale. I was never, I was not familiar with, because she doesn't have any of her callbacks of, from her days in the comics, other than, I guess... Batman won the movie, and uh, yeah, I never knew that she was a comic book character. I thought that she was just invented for uh, a love interest for Batman. Because mm-hmm. he does have a uh, pretty much a different love interest in, in every film, and uh, in three out of four of them, they find out that he's Batman. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, even with the, the Nolan Batman trilogy, they just which the actress playing the same character. So mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how they got around having a, a different female love interest. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if I, uh, if you count the, uh, the Nolan films, then it's like uh, four out of six or yeah. oh, five, five out of seven. He tells his love interests, although two of them are, are the same love interest, I believe. But yeah, that's, <laughs> It's it's always <laughs> he's, not, he's not very good at keeping secrets, right? Oh, <laughs> um, well, what did you think about the penguin's whole story? Because, and and I always remember whenever this film came out, like whenever Danny DeVito was cast as as the penguin, it's like that that is the the perfect that's the dream casting. Um, yeah, for the Penguin, I was really happy to actually finally see a Penguin in a Batman movie, because this is the only one of all the Batman films that the Penguin is the lead villain, and, um, Danny DeVito was great. Um, like I said, I didn't really understand where, like, all the malformities came from and stuff, so I was like, oh, that's maybe taking the idea of Penguin a little too far. Um, I thought he was, he did a really fine job. I remember when I was growing up, I was really young. I was maybe six or seven when Batman Returns came out. And my mother wouldn't let me see the film because Danny DeVito's Penguin bites off somebody's nose. <laughs> and when I finally saw the film, saw the scene yesterday, I was like, well, it's not that bad. He doesn't really bite the guy's <laughs> nose off. But, you know, I, I could see other reasons for not wanting a seven-year-old to see this particular uh, uh, version of Batman. Right, there, there's that scene, and and even going to the end, Max Shrek's death scene is pretty gruesome. Right, uh, where you get to see the charred corpse after she, after Catwoman kisses him with the uh, um, stun gun. <laughs> I, I thought it was funny that the stun gun almost looked cat-like. 
and its design. Like it had like the way it was shaped. I was like, oh, that that makes it a perfect weapon for her. I hadn't even noticed that. I just, I always um, thought that that that's just how those guns look because that's I believe that's how I've more or less how I've always seen them. Oh well, I I I, I guess I thought it was more like it, it made sense for her to have a taser or something. Mm-hmm. And I, and I I did like some of the humor that that pops up through through this film, like like the scene where she does acquire that stun gun from uh, with the old lady um, who like just brings it out. It's like that's why I have that's why I carry one of these. Right. I think like the, the where she actually got the stun gun though was because like there was a guy holding her and then Batman uh, knocks him out and she picks up the the taser from the guy and then she just proceeds to kick the guy. Yeah. Um. But uh, I also liked the um the whole storyline about how uh, Penguin is running for mayor, which is. Uh, even though I haven't seen it, um, uh, I'm aware that that there was an episode of the '66 Batman uh, of the Adam West Batman where Penguin ran for mayor, and uh, I believe that that at least a little bit is is pulled from that. Uh, although I I wasn't as fond just because it's become a bit of a cliche that about how. His entire plan unravels due to something that he said and gets recorded by Batman and then gets played back in front of a crowd. Right, it's like the same. Uh, Even though he has the great line, which I which I had forgotten that he says, but I was thinking almost the exact same thing whenever he says, "Why is there always someone who brings eggs and tomatoes to a speech?" Because everyone starts throwing right all the stuff at them. Yeah, although it, it looks like they're they were throwing like tomatoes and lettuce. Yeah, but like whenever that happened, it's like where did the crowd get all these all this fruit and and vegetables from? And then he says that line. Yeah. Um. As far as like, um. I guess I can review Michael Keaton as seeing as I saw both films for the first time. I actually. I think I saw Batman, and then I saw his new film, Birdman, which sort of harks back to Batman a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I saw uh, Batman Returns. And, um, I don't know, he does a a good job, but he's not my Batman type deal. And, although I don't really, maybe my Batman is the um, Batman from the animated series. Right. That that might be my Batman, Kevin Conroy. Yeah, Kevin Conroy, and uh, because I mean, I think the first Batman film I saw in theaters was Batman Forever, and uh, and so like my first Batman film. So, um, and I don't think uh, what was it, Val Kilmer who did mm-hmm. Forever? Right. I don't think he <laughs> really stuck with me. So, <laughs> yeah, I I don't think there's too many people that. Who might have saw, uh, like, I get the feeling that most of the time, the first person you see in the role is the one that sticks with you. Although, like, I imagine you had seen the animated series before seeing Batman Forever. Right. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of it does have to do with with the first person you see play the role kind of sticks with you. So a lot of people, like, around my age, where I'm, I'm just a few years older than you, because I... I almost positive that I saw the first Batman in theaters when I would have been nine years old then. Yeah. And so I, I still think that, uh, Michael Keaton is, is my Batman. Um, it's just hard to, to see anyone else like that. A lot of the other actors do a great job and I, I know I'm curious to see, uh, how Ben Affleck will do. Even though that one, that's really the the movie that's the most up in the air, where it could go either way very easily with the Batman v Superman. Right, I could definitely see it going either way, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm always interested to see a new character as Batman, and I think it's a lot easier to put a new character into Batman, whereas say something like Indiana Jones. 
when it, there's if they if Disney wants to reboot that, so it'd be a lot harder to put a new character into Indiana because of how long it's been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, we haven't talked much about Max Shrek in this film, played by the the great Christopher Walken, which I, I noticed. I felt like um, the actor playing his son sounded much more like. Uh, he was doing a Christopher Walken than Christopher Walken was. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Like he was, like he was trying to more like copy Christopher Walken to, so that way he'd seem as his son. But because mm. he he definitely had had the uh, the Christopher Walken way of speaking uh, without going on into a full on impression where Christopher Walken himself it seemed like he wasn't as Christopher Walken as he is in in more recent movies. Yeah, I mean, even like, uh, I don't know if you would have seen it, but Christopher Walken's performance on the Peter Pan musical (laughs) is really painful. Um, And I I like Christopher Walken. Um, I don't know, I think he was good as, as this villain character, and he certainly gets a lot of screen time for a character that I had no previous... Um, awareness of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it, him also being grounded in reality helped me with him because whereas Penguin had his abnormalities and he had his uh, penguins that always followed him around and Catwoman had her cats that always followed him around, Christopher Walken character was pretty much just like a, a gangster, like a really crooked guy and I could yeah. I could see that more easily within Batman. Yeah, he was a corrupt business businessman. Right. Uh, even though, like his his uh, villain plot was one thing that I just thought was absurd. Uh, even though it's it's not really um, a big part of the film, like it's it's always mentioned. Like he could have just had these um, all these bad business deals that they make mention of, but never really um, spell out what they are. But because uh, I know the penguin more or less blackmails him with the like the people that he killed. Like he's got the the guy's hand, of, right? His partner. So it's like oh, you almost think like maybe Christopher Walken is like a Scrooge character, I guess, if you want to bring it back to Christmas, <laughs> right? And he also has that wild gray hair, um, but yeah, and and he's got like the toxic waste. But his big plan is that this power plant that he's building isn't really a power plant at all, but it's like a, a giant capacitor to where he's going to like steal the power and resell it or something. I have no idea. Right. They they don't really <laughs> spell it out past that, but they just say that he's going to be sucking the power from Gotham instead of making more power because Bruce Wayne mentions that Gotham already has a power surplus. So I, but aside from that, but that, that's really just kind of a, a minor part, just one of those things that that really helps sell the fact that he's a villain. But it, it's just one of those things that I noticed and, and kind of bugged me a little bit this time around. What kind of elements of this film that are, do you like particularly love about it? Because you said it's like one of your favorite Batman films. Well, I, I always thought that that with Batman. Um, with the world of Batman, that the villains are more interesting than Batman himself, and so I I do like that. Like I I am uh, I do enjoy that this is a bit more Batman light because I I think that seeing the Penguin's backstory is interesting and and the story of Catwoman and how they become these villains. Is just as just as interesting, if not more interesting, than this uh, masked crime fighter. That that pretty much all he does in this film is um, is fight them. Is like he is almost the the antagonist to uh, Catwoman and and Penguin's protagonists, uh, except they're just a little bit more on the dark side of things. And Batman does win in the end. Yeah, I I, I find that I really enjoyed um, basically 
the focus on the, the two villains and seeing them as well. Um, what takes me away from Michael Keaton's rendition of Batman is that I always thought Batman was like maybe like almost like in a Superman type way invincible. Like he wasn't really blundering or anything like that. And there's like a scene where Batman is in his Batmobile after Penguin has um, had his people get control of the Batmobile. And I'm just like, I don't think they'd ever be able to get inside the Batmobile, number one. <laughs> and number two, um, that Batman wouldn't be, like, totally prepared for this to happen if that was the case. He's like, he's just like, oh, no, this is a bad thing. And he's, like, sort of, like, blundering, trying to figure it out, although he eventually does. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's another like slightly cartoonish scene because a penguin is controlling the Batmobile in this like uh, Batmobile kitty ride. Right. <laughs> and so inside the, his trailer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't know. Just overall, I I like the the look of it, and there's some really great looking shots. Watch this time. I I know I do. Uh, screenshots, and I was posting some moments, and I like the the callback to uh, Penguin's like hypnotizing umbrella because he starts spinning it around whenever he first captures Max Shrek, and right. and he's like, "Is that supposed to hit hypnotize me?" He's like, "No, it's supposed to give you a splitting headache," and then he shoots a blank out of it, um, and like the the scene where. Uh, Catwoman has her is looking through the um, the door of the Max Shrek building, and it has this. And we haven't talked about it, but like Max Shrek, his business has this logo, and it's kind of like a mix between uh, Felix. It, it looks very similar to like Felix the Cat. Uh, right. It almost looks like he's running a cat food company instead of I don't know a power plant or this. Uh, well, I mean, he's he's like this kind of like uh, Bruce Wayne. He's yeah, it looks he, like a Macy's almost that he owns. Yeah, and and like Selena gets these voicemails from um, from Max Shrek's uh, I don't know telemarketers uh, trying to get her to buy the the latest Max Shrek perfume and, and things like that, which which is kind of an, an interesting uh, weird moment. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just like, I'm a fan of Tim Burton's early work. I, I like his visual style and I think that this movie is a nice, um, bridge between like Tim Burton's fantasy movies and, and Batman. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, again, what, what doesn't help me is probably my... Um, dislike of those earlier Burton films, I, I remember always being slightly terrified by Edward Scissorhands. Um, and uh, I don't think I really enjoyed Tim Burton until maybe Nightmare Before Christmas, because I mean, maybe I was a little older, or maybe it just didn't um, terrify me as much. <laughs> um, so I guess that's why I was a little um, not in love with these Batman films. I mean, even a Batman one, um, I mean, I guess my problem more or less lies with how Jack Nicholson manipulated that film and how he made himself top billing and it's really his movie. I, I guess maybe I like, although we were complaining that Batman Returns is Batman light. Um, <laughs> um, I guess Batman Returns might be more enjoyable of the two. Yeah, and and that's kind of how I look at things too, because I, I think that even though Batman Returns does have some silly moments uh, here and there, it, it feels like there's less silly moments than there were in the first Batman, and there's a lot more of the darker sensibilities. It's it's just an overall darker storyline, um, and and I think it it's handled pretty well, but. Uh, I can I can understand because this is really a very Tim Burton movie from beginning to end, and if you if you're not a big fan of that style, then it can really put you off. Yeah, it's like even I I, I can't believe the uh, the body count that 
Tim Burton's Batman gets away with. Because you mentioned just the henchmen, but I mean, even the villains, they just, they don't go to Arkham Asylum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although it's, like, in a, in a way, he does, like, they are a product of their own demise. Uh, like with, uh, like with the penguin, he, even though Batman sets it up, Penguin's the, the one that finally pushes the button and he does cause his own demise, but the, the first two henchmen, that, that's all on Batman. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, uh, um, I think that covers Batman Returns. Um, and I'd like to, to thank you again for joining me and, and, uh, trying out batman returns for the first time um even though you're you're not fully on board with it i i it does sound like you uh somewhat enjoyed yourself yeah i I could say i enjoyed myself and uh i'm glad to say that i finally watched the tim burton batman films i believe it was a blind spot and what i believe is for all superhero films i've seen quite a bit and i believe i saw like most of the ones that uh, really important. I mean, it's not a problem that I haven't seen Fantastic Four, but uh, <laughs> when it comes to Batman and how much I love that character, I believe that it was important that I finally saw these two films. All right. And uh, do you want to go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Okay, you can find me at my Twitter handle, the, the Twitter <laughs> Twitter handle, um, and Passion Cinema. Um, it's spelled out how it sounds, so that might be difficult, but uh, hope you can find it. And then you can find my work on Movie Mezzanine and Sound on Site, as well as my personal website, impassioncinema.com. Right. And I am Bubba Wheat, and as always, you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can also follow the show uh, FilmWise on Twitter, where I will post uh, posters as I make them, and uh, I'll give announcements about uh, upcoming guests and uh, and uh, things of that nature. So you can follow that as well, and. You can find the show on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and on Podomatic. And if you want to know what two films I'll be talking about on the next regular episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8 time travel with intent to alter the future. You're dead, honey. Am I dead? I'm here to help you. I think you planned too far ahead. What day is it? The date! Are we still together in 10 years? What year? 2004. The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Why me?